The book of Revelation began with the Apostle John in exile on the island of Patmos. It's been so long since we talked about that, you can even kind of forget the context of this, can't you? On the island of Patmos, he has a vision of the glorified Jesus. Not Jesus as he knew him on the earth in his humble estate, as the word says, but glorified. It causes John to fall down on his face. And Jesus gives him a word for the churches. And he begins actually by giving him seven individual epistles to go to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, what is modern day Turf Turkey, roughly. Then he's caught up into heaven in chapters 4 and 5. He sees the presence of God. He sees what I believe to be the church and the, the faithful Old Testament saints in God's presence. He's being glorified and worshipped. And then there's that scroll. Remember the scroll that was opened? That represents God's plan for the end, the redemption of history. And only Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, is able to open that scroll and begin what is the bulk of Revelation, covering chapter 6 through 19, which is called the Great Tribulation. That's a seven-year period that Jesus called the Tribulation. So we name eras all sorts of things, right? You had the Roaring Twenties. You know, I don't know what we're going to call this Twenties, but maybe Roaring would work just as well, I guess. But they're going to call this the Great Tribulation. It's going to be a time where a worldwide evil empire will rise, led by a man called the Antichrist, who will dominate the globe through the most tyrannical system the world has ever known. He's going to compel worship of himself. There's going to be war after war that ravages the globe. God will be raining down plagues from heaven. Satan will be poisoning and attacking the world from the spiritual realm. And then finally, Jesus will return. That's chapter 19. Jesus will return to rescue the nation of Israel, march on Jerusalem, slay the Antichrist and his armies, and cast him into the lake of fire. Then chapter 20 was the establishment of Jesus' 1,000-year kingdom on the earth called the Millennium, the Millennial Kingdom of Jesus, which is going to be 1,000 years of enforced righteousness during which time the children of, of God, the saints, the Christians that have been glorified will be ruling and reigning with Christ. Satan will be bound up for a 1,000 years until the very end when he is released to tempt the nations one more time, raise one last army to march on Jerusalem, and then Jesus will rain fire down from heaven, destroy not just Satan and his armies, but the world and everything that is in it, until all that's left, as John says, is that great white throne, where all the dead will be raised and it will be judgment. It'll be either eternal life or eternal damnation in the lake of fire, what we call hell. And last week, we saw God make a new world, a new heaven, with a new Jerusalem right in the middle, this enormous 1,500-mile square city. Do you remember that? And we talked about how the eternal state is not just going to be floating around in the clouds, strumming on a harp and singing the hallelujah chorus. But it's going to be a year, an, un, or a year, an unending day, a countless years of productive work, of creativity and investigation and discovery and adventure and deepening of relationship with God and one another forever and ever. And this picture continues in chapter 22, verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 5. 
John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So now we see a picture of the new Jerusalem. We're getting this, this inside look at the city square, you might say, coming out from the throne of God and of Christ, which is in the, the middle. And there's a description given here of New Jerusalem that reads like a new and better Garden of Eden. Do you pick up on some of that imagery as you read? It's intended to be picked up that way. It's intended to be like everything that Eden was except new and improved. There's three ways that we see this. Number one is the river of the water of life. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 tells us there were four rivers that ran through the Garden of Eden, one of which was the Euphrates, the Pishon, and others. And this place has this river of the water of life. Ezekiel 47 and Zechariah 14 both describe a river that flows from the temple during the kingdom of Christ for the healing of the nations. Now this gets a little confusing when you're trying to do some eschatological study because those rivers are said to heal the waters that were poisoned by the plagues and to restore the land. And it's definitely during the kingdom where there is a temple. And we know for a fact in the eternal state there is no temple, remember? Because the Lord God is with us and we're not going to need a temple. So this can be confusing. Which is it? John is very clearly lifting some of the descriptions from these passages. I think the best way to understand it is that there's one in both. It's not too complicated, is it? <laughs> There's a river that will flow out of the temple during the millennium that will heal the nations of the water of life. But then when the new world is made and the new Jerusalem comes, there's going to be a bigger and better river, just like there's a bigger and better Jerusalem. That's, that's what the bigger and better world is going to be all about. So the river of the water of life. Number two, we have the tree of life. And some folks get real confused by this because it says the tree of life was planted on both sides of the river. And really, guys, like people have entire excurses and their, their commentaries about how, what this might mean. I think it's rather easy. There's more than one tree. It is the kind of tree, which is the tree of life. There's a lot of them. That's not that complicated, I don't think. And the, the text does not preclude that. That this tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden, that was the tree in Genesis 2 verse 9 that would give life to Adam and Eve. And it actually was to prevent Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of life that caused God to drive them out. Because then there would be that perpetual existence. But God was judging them with death. Well, we're finally going to get to taste it. Isn't that going to be great? And in fact, we're going to get to taste all 12 kinds 12 kinds of trees. And I don't know if this means that there's the January fruit and the February fruit and, you know, it goes from there. Or if there's just 12 different varieties. You know, this is Tree of Life, kind one, kind two. If you're really into horticulture in heaven, you can write a big book about it and it'll be lots of fun. Uh, but it, in any case, the point is, it's always flourishing. There's no winter. There's no death. There's no dormancy in heaven. It's, it's going to be great. We're going to get to taste the Tree of Life. We're going to get to endure and go on forever and ever. We're, we're finally getting what our great-great-grandparents forfeited 
when they chose sin instead, the tree of life. It says for the healing of the nations. And some people say, well, what, what healing? We're in heaven. What do we need to be healed from? I think this is probably more referring to emotional scars and spiritual scars than anything else. Whatever baggage you're bringing with you from this old life, we're probably going to be a little heartbroken after having ruled and reigned over these nations and then watch them fall to the deception of Satan and march on Jerusalem and slay their brothers and sisters. It's going to be like, it's all going to be okay, you guys. Some people even want to say that it could be that it's not that it's healing in that sense, but it's health giving, meaning it's just these things are there to make life wonderful, to make the nations good. They both can be true. And the third thing that makes this like the Garden of Eden, first of all, we had the river, then we had the tree. The third thing, the best of all, is that the presence of God and the Lamb will be there. We're going to see His face. In the Garden of Eden, it says that the Lord walked with Adam in the cool of the day, in the garden, every day. They had a standing appointment. And we're going to get to see God like that. Except it's going to be even better. We're going to see Him face to face. Ponder that for a second. Do you remember what happened in Exodus 33? When Moses said, Oh Lord, show me your glory. The Lord said in Exodus 33, 20, he says, Moses, no man can see my face and live. I will pass through and then I'll let you take a look at the glory that remains after I've passed by. But we're going to get to see God face to face. Over and over, the scripture says, no man has seen God at any time. Well, we're going to see God. We're going to get to look him in the face. We're going to be sustained in our glorified bodies by the Lord to see him. Now, the apostle John in a previous book pondered and speculated, what does this mean about us if we're going to get to see God face to face? John said this in 1 John 3, verse 2. He said, Beloved, we are God's children now. Isn't that cool? You are God's child. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So what is he saying? We know what we are now. We're children of God. But I don't quite know what further change is going to take place in us. Why does he say that? He continues... But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. When God appears, we shall be like God. How can you say that, John? Because we shall see him as he is. John makes a rather logical deduction. If we are going to see God as he is, and no man can see God and live, then we're going to have to be made like God in order for that to be possible. And the apostle even says, what does that mean about us? I'm not even sure I know. It has not been revealed yet. Isn't that amazing to consider and ponder? So when somebody you feel is a little pushing it, when they say what we're going to be like when heaven comes and what the glorification will be like, the apostle John didn't even quite understand the upper limit of glorification. Hallelujah, somebody, right? You know what this tells us? One last thing that ties this to the Garden of Eden. What the serpent offered Eve falsely. If you taste this fruit, you will be like God. It was a lie. He knew that wasn't the case. He knew that they'd be driven out of the garden and they would die. What was falsely offered in the garden will be actually given to us by the grace and the blood of Jesus. Is that the biggest in your face to the devil or what? 
I'm going to tempt them and tease them with the thing that I want, which is to be like God. But in so doing, I'm going to drive them as far away from God as possible. But the Lord says, you don't understand the power of the blood of my son that will not only wash away their sins, but I will glorify them to the place where they can look me in the eye. They'll be made like me. And I believe that's the last thing Satan's going to see before he gets sent off to the lake of fire forever and ever. He's going to see these filthy, pathetic humans that he hates so much achieve the thing that he's been scheming and sinning for all of eternity to gain is going to be granted us by the grace of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? The story will end as it began in the presence of God with a new world to enjoy. Hallelujah, Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Verse six. Now let's keep going. These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants must soon take place. Now the Lord speaks. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, verse 8, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. So this is emphasizing that everything written in this book is true. It's just this over and over again, hammering at the end of the book. This is all true. Jesus affirms it. John saw this vision for real. And it's time for us to heed the word of the Lord, to heed the words of this prophecy. Which brings me to an important lesson for us to close this book with. You see John in, in this passage is sharply rebuked for falling at the feet of an angel to worship him. He did this already in chapter 19, verse 10, which if you ever doubt the tempting power of the devil and the overwhelming awesomeness of angels, even the apostle John himself fell prey to that temptation. This reminds us that we are not to follow after angels and false spirits. In fact, Paul says, I don't care if an angel from heaven tells you about a different gospel, that angel is a curse. It's anathema. So Mormonism, oh, I had an angel come and tell me about a different gospel. Too bad. That angel's a demon. Muhammad, same thing. Oh, the, the angel came and spoke to me and, and gave me a new revelation. And, and to what? To abandon the belief in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a lying, deceiving spirit. You always need to test things, the Bible says. I believe in supernatural encounters with the Lord and the Holy Spirit and even with angels. However, all of that is tested against the deposit that has been entrusted to us by that same Lord. Because he's not going to contradict himself, right? But what's the lesson for us from this? It's a reminder for all of us that it is very easy to become infatuated with the study of prophecy itself and miss the purpose for which prophecies are given. John fell down at the feet of the messenger rather than acknowledging the message and the one about whom the message was given. Some people absolutely obsess over eschatology, over end time study, and completely miss the point. 
I'm a big believer in teaching the end times prophecy, as you well know. We're finishing up the book of Revelation. We've taught through First and Second Thessalonians. We've taught through Daniel. We did a whole conference, which is still on our website, about Bible prophecy. I think these things are great. I love recommending resources, and we talk about it as we go through the text in the appropriate places. But some people become absolutely obsessed and given over to these things. Their entire spirituality consists of trying to figure out through the newspaper headlines and what they see online how this fits in with prophecy. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what happens is those folks begin to neglect the purpose for which prophecy is given in the first place. I, I see this very common, that people that obsess over Bible prophecy seem to have no time for the local church. Because they think, well, all these churches, they're not talking enough about what's going on in the world and how that relates to Bible prophecy. Which might be a standing rebuke to you that, well, everybody who's doing the actual work of the ministry seems to have other priorities. Not that this is not one of them, but there are others. Uh, Gail Irwin is a, used to be a teacher for Calvary Chapel and got a great book called The Jesus Style and others. But he, he talks about his ministry, how he says, I have one string on my guitar, which is the nature of Jesus. It's a great, great line. But my pastor used to use it to remind us as a church staff. He would say, when we're doing church ministry, we cannot afford just to have one string on our guitar. Because we have to teach the entirety of Scripture. We've got to meet people in all sorts of different situations. And we can't just talk about one thing. If I were to teach the amount that every parachurch ministry thinks I should teach about their thing, we'd need like 400 weeks in the year. I mean, I've had people blow through. We should talk about, do a series on prophecy at least once a year. You should do a series on tithing at least once a year. You should talk about mental health at least once a month. And on and on and on it goes. And that's, listen, that's your ministry. That's your focus. That's fine. But as a complete Christian, you need to take a, a holistic view of the scriptures. And not only that, but people sometimes that obsess over prophecy, what they're really doing is they're engaging in conspiracy theory and calling it Christianity. And it makes them angry and makes them grumpy and it makes them full of hate and venom. And there, there is nobody meaner on the internet than somebody that really likes Bible prophecy, unfortunately. Go and look at the comments under some of these videos sometime. Bad practice in general. But they'll, they'll straight up just tell you. you know, the label false teacher and heretic gets thrown around so fast. They kind of use that as a replacement for righteousness and obedience to Christ. There are some churches that this is all they really want to talk about. And if we're doing a message from Song of Solomon about marriage, you better believe by the end we're going to be talking about the rapture again. <laughs> of course, there's the other extreme. Let's never talk about this. Do you know how many people have told me that I'm brave when they ask, what are you preaching at your church right now? And I say, are you going through Revelation? Oh, you're a brave man. I'm like, I'm not a brave man. I'm a pastor. I have to do this. <laughs> It's it is intimidating, don't get me wrong. But the amount of people that say, I just would never touch that. Or they say, I do not need the trouble that would come in my church from preaching that book. And that's, that's more an act of moral cowardice than anything else. That's the, an inability to stand up to somebody and say, you're out of line and you need to stop. Some people, of course, are, just think there's nothing to be learned from this. It's just too confusing. It's, too, it's just, what are you really going to get out of this? Just teach the gospel again. That's what people really need. I think there's been an awful lot of application that we've taken from this book personally. I think it's been very edifying for us as a congregation. But I want to give us today, there's going to be seven total, 
takeaways that we should get from the study of the book of Revelation specifically and from Bible prophecy in general. And if you're one of those folks that you love to study end time stuff and you, you watch all the podcasts and you read all the books, that good for you. I love that. I do it too. But I'm trying to remind you of there are other things that need to occupy your time as well. And these are the sorts of lessons you ought to be learning from them. Pre-trib guys, by the way, guys that believe in the pre-trib rapture are very often accused of not really giving any sort of lesson. We just want to talk about the end. Well, that's not fair because I'm about to do it right now. Here we go. Seven things. Let's start with number one. What do we get? What's the takeaway? Why did we go through all of this? Talking about Babylon and stars and bottomless pits. Why are we, why are we doing all this? Number one is for knowledge. For knowledge. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, John, John tells us it was written to show us what was going to happen in the end. This is something that many people forget. They say, well, the book of Revelation is just there to talk about Jesus winning and Jesus being in charge and great. That's true. But it also is a revelation. He's trying to teach you things. It's not so obscure that you can't understand it. Most people that think the book of Revelation is impossible to understand have a very small familiarity with the rest of Scripture. Because as you've seen, a lot of these things that, what does that even mean? Oh, if you read Daniel, it just kind of tells you. Or if you read Matthew 24, Jesus lays it out for us real easy. I'm not saying it's, it's not difficult, but we should not neglect the revelation of Revelation. We ought to take the time to learn and understand so that when the end comes or it begins to move in that direction, we can say, here it comes. And I will say, by the way, when you're going to study these things, use good sources. Don't just Google some guy's blog, man. Don't just find some guy that seems real radical and gets you excited. Use good, the, the, use the classics. If you're a pre-trip guy, Ed Heinsohn, John Walverd, uh, Tim LaHaye, all those guys, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Dwight Pentecost. I'm happy to give you this list later. But these are the guys that they're going to give you great information, but you might be a little disappointed because it's not very sensational. Thomas Ice is another one. It's not going to be, you know, talking about what's happening in the news necessarily, but it's going to give you good, solid Bible study. Take the time to find the right sources. We've tried to provide a lot of that for you here. That's the first one. Knowledge, to know what the Lord has said. Number two is worship. To worship the Lord. Isn't that what the angel told John right there? Yeah. Worship God. We should be so overwhelmed with the revelation of the end that it caused us to fall on our feet, fall on our knees, and worship Jesus Christ. To worship God. To bow before Him. Because He's the King of time. Right? He sees the end from the beginning. And Isaiah 46.10 tells us that's how we know that He's the only God. Because He declares the end from the beginning. He says, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to make it happen. He's like the, the toughest heavyweight boxer of all time. He shows up to the weigh-in. He's like, what are you going to do to him, Jesus? I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do to Satan when that big fight rolls down. Because he's got the strength and the power to back it up, baby. That's our Lord. We worship him. That gets lost so much in these Bible, Bible things. We want to figure out what it says. Oh, that's good. But it should always turn to a worship and a praise of Jesus Christ. Number three, obedience. Holiness. If we know that Jesus is coming soon, that ought to compel us to live holy lives. That means set apart, separate, distinct lives from everybody else. To walk in righteousness. That's what the angel challenges us to do. He's got that rather <laughs> tough to swallow verse there. In verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. 
And the righteous still be righteous, and the holy still be holy. What's his point? He's kind of saying, that's the end of the book. And if that's not going to do it for you, there's nothing else I can do for you. Very similar to when Abraham told the rich man in the, in the grave, in the parable Jesus told, he said, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they're not going to believe that, then they're not going to believe anything else. But he calls us to be righteous, to be holy. You know, many people say very often, it's unfortunate, even in the church, they say, look, I'm going to get my life together eventually. But I want to have some fun first. As my buddy from my last job said to me that one time, ain't you got some sinning left to do? That's how we think. Now, we would never come out and just say it like that. But, you know, we'll come to church and we'll bring the teenagers to church and we'll let them hear the message from the pastor to the call to be righteous and holy. And the kid gets all fired up and the parents tell them, just don't get too carried away. You know, you got, you got plenty of time to get serious about your faith. I, I led a youth group, man. I know that happens. I had parents tell their kids to stop going to church so much. It's like, this is just a little too much. You get a little obsessed. How do you think those kids did when they went to college? And what happened? I don't know why they're not following the Lord, because that's what you taught them to do. And I can never understand the parent that would drop their teenager off at a prayer meeting. <laughs> I don't understand that. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, you're young and you're excited, but you know, there's more to life than that. But listen, if Jesus is coming soon, 2 Peter 3 verse 11 says, if we know that everything's going to be dissolved, what kind of lives ought we to live? Lives of holiness and obedience and devotion. I don't got time to sow my wild oats. Yeah. Well, sure you do. No, you don't. It might be today. Do you really want to be caught in that place? You know the place. In that place when Jesus comes back? Do you want to do what John says in his epistle and shrink from him in shame at his coming? Do you want to hear the trumpet and the call to come up here and you go, oh no, not now. And you're in line to get in through the pearly gates and you're like hiding behind people so Jesus doesn't see you. Is that really what you want to do? Obedience, friends. Also ought to scare you a little bit to see what's going to happen to sinners at the end of time. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fourth thing we learn from end time study, evangelism, kind of leads out of the last one. If we know that time is short, if Jesus has not yet returned, there is still time to share the good news. All these things are coming on the world, but people can be saved from those things. That's why the delay is happening. So you've got to get out there and tell people, we're running out of time. Never mind the rapture coming soon. You don't know how long someone's going to be in your life. You don't know how long that neighbor is going to be living there or how long you're going to be at that job or how long people are going to be alive. Not to be morbid, but just to be serious. The Bible calls us to be sober-minded. We've got to share the gospel with people. If we're so comfortable standing firm and standing strong in our political positions, shouldn't we be like way more enthusiastic about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, people don't want to hear it. They need to hear it. Well, they're going to get angry. They need to hear it. Well, they might hate me. They might fire me. They might whatever. Well, Jesus died on a cross for you, friend. Evangelize to other people like you would want you to be evangelized to. Or let's put it a different way. Like you would want your wayward child to be evangelized to. You want your wayward kid, if you have one, or just put yourself in that mental state. You've got a son, for example, that's run away from God and isn't following Jesus. And they've got a Christian neighbor next door. What, what would you have to say to that, to that neighbor if you found out they never once shared the gospel with them? Well, I don't want to make them upset. Come on, y'all. Share the gospel. Do not delay to spread the word. Get out there and tell people Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and if you believe in him, you'll be forgiven because he rose from the dead. That's all you have to say. 
Well, I don't really believe that. I'm telling you that it's true. Well, prove it. I can't prove it. All I can tell you is that when you believe, you will be saved. I did a terrible job. Yeah, but now the Holy Spirit is in there. Now he's starting to work with that word that never returns void. If Jesus is coming back soon, tell people. Tell people, my friends. Number five, endurance. This is what we learn from end time study. Endurance. So much of this book has been about that. Holding fast until the end. The end is going to come, whether it's going to be through the rapture or not, through your own death. It doesn't matter. You've got to keep going and never give up. It's unfortunate. This does not happen as much as people say it does. But there are people that say things like, forget it. I, all I care about now is Jesus coming back. I'm not, I'm not, I don't care about this world anymore. I don't care about people anymore. I'm just, I'm, all, I'm, all that can happen is the rapture. You're quitting. Don't quit. Well, they, they're under judgment. Yeah, they are. Go give them the good news. How can we do that? I mean, related to that evangelism thing, it's amazing. These people that sometimes are so obsessed with Bible prophecy, they never spend the time to tell people they can be saved from all this stuff. They just want to fight about the different versions of how we interpret it. Endurance. When temptation comes. When persecution comes. When the Christian walk gets hard. Jesus said it would be hard. If somebody told you it was easy, sorry, they're wrong. Jesus said it is a narrow and difficult road that leads to life and there are few that find it. But here's the sixth lesson we get from studying Bible prophecy. Anticipation. Anticipation. Jesus said he's coming soon. When? Soon. And that's as much detail as you're going to get. That gives us an incredible hope that fills every hour of every day. You got kind of an eye on the sky. That, yeah, we're, we're planning to build this house and we're, we're planning to go move here and get this job done. But, but what if Jesus comes first? Wouldn't that be so much better? Wouldn't the, what if the rapture happens before all that? I'd love that. Now, when, if you are really excited about something coming up, you're like, oh, Lord, I'm really excited about the rapture. But we just bought some Disney World tickets. So just maybe after that's over, then it'd be great. It's like, let's trust me, man. Heaven's going to be a lot better than Disney World, I promise you. And you're not going to worry about your deposit because they're not going to do any good up there anyway. Anticipation. That even when life gets hard and heavy and the coronavirus comes or some politician gets elected that we're really worried about, we've got that hope that Jesus could come back today and fix it. I could be in the, the presence of Jesus before I walk out that door. When I was a kid, I used to always like look up and if I saw the cloud moving, I didn't know that clouds just like moved, you know, like, oh, is that Jesus coming back? It's got to be. Well, you know, you don't want to get old and get cynical about that. Yeah. Oh, he'll come up whenever he comes. Yeah, but it might be today. Yeah. Every day then is filled with that anticipation that today could be the last day and we're going to be in heaven with Jesus forever. Those six things, this is what we learn from these things. Knowledge, worship, obedience, evangelism, endurance, and anticipation. This passage speaks of the book as unsealed. If you remember when the book of Daniel, chapter 8, the angel told Daniel, seal it up. Seal it up until the end. Well, here you have the exact opposite. Unseal it. Why? Because everybody needs to know. Like that song, people get ready. Jesus is coming. And it is affirmed. This book itself is affirmed with the highest honors, with the words of Jesus itself. Which is why I'm glad that we've gone through this. I'm glad we've gone through the book of Revelation. And we'll do it again when the time comes. Because it will always be productive. And it will always be edifying if we remember these things. And don't just become obsessed about winning online arguments. 
and not just obsessed with catching the pastor if he misspeaks about your favorite cross-reference, but just saying, hey, Jesus is coming soon. How then are we to live? And I know that's only six, and I said seven. We've got to find the, the next one in the next section. So let's get to verse 12. This is Jesus still speaking. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, that means my repayment, with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Jesus emphasizes that he is coming soon to bring an end to what he started. He was the beginning and the end, because John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word. He was with God and he was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the beginning, and he's going to be the end. And he calls us, the Lord Jesus, speaking directly to the church, says, wash your robes. How often is it in this book that the saints have been clothed in white robes? It's, it's going back to this classic picture in the Bible that our robes are stained with sin, with blood, usually it says. It was stained with the, the red blood of sin, but if you wash them in his blood, they'll be clean to receive his work on the cross. It all goes back to the cross. That Jesus died for your sins. He took the penalty you deserve to pay so that you don't have to pay it anymore. So that you can enter the new city. And how do we know? Because he rose from the dead. And that city will not be open to perverse sinners. You cannot just say, well, everybody will make it eventually. That's not true. That's so mean. It's not mean. He told you ahead of time so that you wouldn't be mistaken. And I'm not going to go through this whole list again, but you see this, the dogs. Well, that's not really nice to call somebody a dog. Well, usually in the Bible and in this culture, when someone was referred to as a dog, it referred to as especially abominable sins. Very often, by the way, homosexuality, sorcerers, sexually immoral murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Liars. It's amazing how often we'll just lie and not even think about it, isn't it? But we don't do that. The question for us all is, have you repented of those things? What does repentance mean? It means to turn. The Old Testament word shuv for repent just means to turn. And the New Testament word for repent is metanoia, and it means to change your mind, to think differently. So let's put both those things together. Change your mind and change your actions. Stop thinking that way and stop acting that way. Turn around, renounce the old life and start living a new life. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation, as is indeed the point of all of Scripture, to call us to obey the gospel by repenting from our sins in true faith. It's amazing how many people want to say foolish things like, 
We've got to get away from what the apostles said and what the other prophets said because they're just so angry. They don't properly represent the grace of Jesus. We just want to go back to the words of Christ because he's the one that preaches all these, if you want to be real honest about it, all these progressive liberal doctrines that we want to be preaching. But those people fail to understand that the key note of Jesus' ministry was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn around. That's why this angel is going to say, let the wicked still be wicked. If they can hear this and remain unchanged, then there's nothing to be done for them. To obey the good news, to take advantage of Jesus' sacrifice in true faith, to believe the story, renounce your old life, and live the rest of your life as an active, open follower of Jesus Christ. You might wonder sometimes, what's taken Jesus so long? Why, what's taken so long? It's been 2,000 years almost. 2,000 years. By the way, I'm just going to warn you right now. When we hit 2030, you, there, I guarantee you there will be books published saying that since it's been 2,000 years since the, the resurrection, this is the year Jesus is coming back. Can I just warn you right now, just please don't waste your money. <laughs> what's taken Jesus so long? Well, Peter answers that question for us. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Peter's way of saying, I don't think it's taken too long, but I know some people might. Well, what's taken so long? He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus says there's still some people who might be saved. Sometimes I wonder, do you think Jesus is saying to his father, God, can I please go back today and get them? Or is he, in fact, saying, Lord, please, just one more day, because somebody else might get saved today? We have no way of knowing that, obviously. It's probably a mixture of both things, and Jesus is going to trust the wisdom of his Father. But there's no other proper response to this book than number seven, repentance. To believe on Jesus Christ. To believe, to say, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to throw myself upon the, the sacrifice of the lamb. That's the only thing I'm counting on for my salvation. Today's got to be your day. And I have been in church too long not to know that there are good, conservative, Christian, southern people that go to church every week and yet are not born again. I know that to be a fact. I've given altar calls and people have come forward that shocked me. Him? Her? Really? And it turns out, I never believed. I just came. I liked the community. I liked the fellowship. I liked the doctrine. But I never surrendered my life to Christ. My wife dragged me. My husband dragged me. I wanted my kids to have this. Y'all, you've got to put your faith in Jesus Christ or there's no salvation for you. I won't be able to vouch for you when we get to heaven. Only the blood of Jesus can do that for you. If your name is not written in the book of life, there's no hope for you. But we're taking registrations today, y'all. Today has to be your day. Jesus Christ worked out all of history so that I could offer this salvation to you. He's the morning star. Why is he called the morning star? Two reasons. Number one, that's the name that Satan has taken for himself. Lucifer means light bringer. It means the morning, the, the day star. I'm going to bring about a new world that's going to be under my authority, not God's. Jesus goes, no, no, I'm the morning star. I'm the one. The rising of Jesus Christ heralded that new day where there will be no more sin or crying or pain or any such thing. And also, he is the root and descendant of David, the king of kings. 
Now, this is great. It says, I'm the root, and also, to use an Old Testament term, the branch of David. I'm the one that started the line of David, but I also came from the line of David. This comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. It says, in that day, always a good clue that we're talking about the end of the world in the Old Testament, by the way. In that day, the root of Jesse, who was David's father, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations, goyim, Gentiles, inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Jesus says, that's me. I'm the root of David. I'm the branch of David. I'm the beginning and the end. He fills all things. And he is offering today rest for you. The nations may come to him. He's not just the God of Israel. He is the God of every nation. Another person of the Old Testament says it's too light a thing for Jesus' salvation to only redeem the nations of Israel. But all nations, myself included, may be saved through his sacrifice. Today, that signal is going out to you to come and receive the mercy before the end comes. It'll be too late. The Holy Spirit says, come. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He draws us to salvation. He brings us close, brings us right up to the edge, and he makes us desire and long for Jesus. He makes us dissatisfied with the things of the world. The bride says, come, that's us. We're the bride of Christ. We're insisting and pleading with you. Come, come to Jesus. And if you also will say, come with us, then you can take a drink of that living water right now and be saved forever. I've been given this call the last few weeks. I don't know how I can finish this book of Revelation without giving the call to be saved. That's what it's all about. To do the good old-fashioned thing of getting saved. We've gotten away from that. But that's what we need. Not just to be good students of the Bible, but to be evangelists and to be disciples ourselves. Let's finish it up now. Verse 18 to the end. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. So that's you. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. <laughs> and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. We've come to the end. The book is done. And we are very straightly warned not to mess with it. And I think by putting it at the end of the canon of Scripture, it's God's way of reminding us, you don't mess with any of this. You don't change the Bible. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. And Jesus lends his own authority to the book of Revelation. I think I already told this story in a previous message, but I'll say this again. Somebody called the church recently, and uh, they had a real problem with people using the term Christian because they said that, that term didn't come from God, and we're not supposed to live on anything except which comes from the mouth of God. To which I said, well, in the book of Acts, it says they were first called Christians at Antioch. And Peter tells us that we ought to suffer as Christians. And he kind of, you know, yada, yada, goes through that. Well, then everything's got to be confirmed through the mouth of two or three witnesses. To which I said, Acts and Peter, as two witnesses. <laughs> and he said, well, I mean, but it's, it's, it's just kind of silly that we, we do that. What does it even mean? I said, it means somebody that follows Christ. 
And he goes, but I mean, I think that it's just, it's, it's just too much. We've got to get rid of it. I said, people have confirmed that with their blood for thousands of years. Millions of people have died for being Christians. And you're going to say that it's not that important? He goes, well, you don't have the word of God. I said, yes, I do. I have Acts and I have Peter. And he said, well, that's not the word of God, though. That's just the word of the apostles. I said, you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God? He goes, well, I mean, it's not the same thing. At which point I hung up the phone. No. <laughs> I didn't just hang up the phone immediately. I had something to say, but what I said was that you obviously have an axe to grind. Go grind it somewhere else. And, and then I hung up the phone. Remember what Jesus said not to cast your pearls before swine? Yeah. Talking about him. I do have a point in telling that story. If you can't trust the Bible... Where exactly are you getting your ideas about God? Jesus himself says, this is real. Read it, believe it, and don't touch it. So if we're going to walk around saying, yeah, but what about the book of Enoch? And what about the book of Mormon? And what about the Quran? And what about this philosopher? And what about the Gnostic Gospels? You've got your Bible. That's enough. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. For now and then, somebody rolls up. Do we really need 2 Peter? Do we really need four Gospels? Apparently so. Because the Lord saw fit to give it to us. This is why we study the Bible verse by verse, by the way. If you stick around here long enough, you will have heard verse by verse teaching through the entirety of Scripture. Jesus lends his own authority to the book of Revelation, and in fact, all of Scripture, insisting again that he's coming soon. And as we look around us, it's clear that this must be the case. Israel has become a nation again and is a world player right now and surrounded by enemies. And what does the book of Revelation describe but the nation of Israel as a world player surrounded by enemies? Their desperation for a peace agreement might leave them very well open to that covenant that the Antichrist says he's going to make. There are even people in Israel that have plans to rebuild the temple. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is up there right now, but I'm not really concerned about that. The Lord can sort it out. The apparatus is in place for the kind of control that the book of Revelation describes. There are people that are actively working to develop a worldwide surveillance state right now. Ranging from the use of the internet, satellite technology where we can take pictures and videos from anywhere in the world, facial recognition, digital currency, drones, social media. People, <laughs> I don't want to put an Alexa in my house because then the government's tracking me. I'm going to post that on my Facebook page. <laughs> Okay. On your iPhone, right? Yeah. Now, am I saying those things are evil? No, 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 no. I'm saying those things are the apparatus that could be used for the kind of control the book of Revelation describes. See the difference? There are also people willing to use such things to do the kinds of things Revelation describes. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist guy, but y'all saw during the Rona, during the pandemic, man. That's Pastor Tony's phrase. I loved it, and I always use it now. During that time, you had people saying wacky things. Remember the folks, the guys in, in Europe, the billionaires, talking about how we're going to reset everything, and we're going to take away private ownership, and everything's just going to be online, and we're just going to move to this all-digital, one-world thing. And now, is that, Are those people the Antichrist? Well, obviously not, because it, it didn't work. But I'm saying there are people willing to do the kinds of things the book is describing. How long until it breaks bad? Even if somebody is trying to do that for, with the best of intentions, to which as a good American I say, I'd rather you just leave me alone, thank you very much. 
But how long until the wrong person gets hold of that? The world itself. Look at the kind of sin that we're dealing with now. All manner of sexual perversion. The, pre the prevalence of drug abuse and drug use. These weird Gnostic doctrines that keep creeping up of enlightenment and expand your mind and, and find out that new plane of existence. The amount of violent revolutions that are taking place even in our own country. These unsustainable postmodern epistemologies that you can't know anything that are just weakening people's minds and consciences and preparing them for these wacky ideas. Whatever your construction of how you think the end times will unfold, Rome, Islam, globalism, there's, there's lots of very good options to look at it. The board is clearly set for the end. It hasn't happened yet, obviously, but it's all there. More so than when John was writing. And if there's any gaps in the prophetic picture, we can assume they will be fulfilled in due time. This is real, you guys. But this should not lead us to, number one, despair. Oh, God, it's so horrible what's going to happen. Okay, but as Jesus said, these things must take place so that the end can come. Nor should it lead us to conspiracy theories, by the way, trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. That's not going to happen, Paul says, until the restrainer has been removed. Which, in my interpretation, that's the church being removed. The salt and the light of the world being removed. It should lead instead to joyful hope and anticipation. That yes, the European Union have a building in Europe that they made to look like the Tower of Babel. And yes, there's a statue out front that is a woman riding a beast. Yeah, that's real. But that just means that Jesus is coming back soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You realize the last things that Jesus said in your Bible... Surely I am coming soon. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Surely I'm coming soon. I don't want us to read these things and get all scared and angry. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 to remind us of what's coming next. It says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The next thing on the prophetic timetable is the rapture of the church. It is a signless event. You do not need any more signs to happen before the rapture can happen. Don't click on that video, guys. It's not real. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. That it could happen before I finish this Bible study today. There's lots of cool things that can happen that move into place to make it all look so very plausible and likely. But it might be today. Five minutes from now. You don't know. We need to remember that, that as we study end times prophecy, we're not full of dread and terror, but we're full of anticipation and excitement. No guarantee that it might be sooner now than before. It was soon when Jesus said, I'm coming soon. Should Israel be driven out of their land again, that will not shake my faith in the truth of the book of Revelation. Should all this... this Social engineering apparatus just fall to pieces and, you know, we're, maybe the power grid goes down and we're just living with, you know, spears and swords again. That's not going to shake my faith in what the truth of Scripture says. Because we're not bound to what we see as the fulfillment of these things. We're bound to the text. And one of the clearest, most obvious things the text says is, surely he's coming soon. So we're going to go about our abundant Christian lives.
We're going to labor in the fields of the harvest. And we're going to agree with John and say what he does. Maranatha. Maranatha. What is that? That's an Aramaic word. Maranatha. Come, Lord. This is how the church used to greet each other in the early days, or how they would sign the letters. Maranatha. Come, Lord. Come on, Jesus. Why not today? Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. All of your stress and your fear and your pain were going to end in an instant when Jesus comes back. Never forget that. That it is possible that it all ends instantly. Until that day, my friends, John says it best, just as Paul and Peter and the other apostles always do when they give letters, even if it's a big, long letter like Revelation, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. And I know that it will be, because Jesus promised, and the Lord always keeps his promises.